Welcome to Dissenting Opinions, a podcast by the Constitutional Law Institute at the University of Chicago Law School. I'm your host, William Bode, and each episode I discuss with top legal minds a Supreme Court case they believe is misunderstood. Every bill which shall have passed the House of Representatives and the Senate shall, before it becomes a law, be presented to the President of the United States. Thank you, gentlemen. The case is submitted. We'll hear arguments next in uh, Immigration and Naturalization Service against China and the consolidated cases. So we're releasing this episode on Constitution Day as our way of uh, celebrating that holiday. And I'm here with my newest colleague, Kurt Bradley, a uh, constitutional law, separation of powers, federal courts, foreign relations law superstar who has many interesting views about a lot of things. But one of the things we're going to talk about is a mainstay of the constitutional law curriculum, S versus Chata. So welcome, Kurt. Well, thank you so much. Well, it's really a pleasure to join you and talk about the case. I'm excited too. So the way we usually do this is sort of just to first, you know, make sure everybody's on the same page about what the case is basically and what it did and what the kind of conventional wisdom about the case is, and then get into why that conventional wisdom might be missing something and you know where else that takes us. So can we start there? So what is this case? I think all students have had my constitutional law class will know the answer, and most people who are not lawyers will not know the answer. Sure. So it's a 1983 decision by the Supreme Court. It's INS versus Chada, Immigration Naturalization Service versus Chada. And the Supreme Court held in the decision that so-called legislative veto provisions are unconstitutional. And so I should say a word about what those provisions are. There are provisions in a statute, and part of the statute give the executive branch, maybe an administrative agency or maybe the president, authority to do something that the president of the agencies might not have had the power to do without the statute. But the provision also says that if Congress disagrees with what the executive does in exercising that authority, they can override it, but without having to pass a new statute. And these legislative veto provisions might just require a majority vote in one of the two houses of Congress, for example, or maybe both houses, but without having to present a new piece of legislation to the president, which might be vetoed. And in theory, this is a way for Congress to have an easier method of overturning exercises of its delegated authority, rather than having to pass an entire new legislative act, if it disagrees with what the executive is doing. And These provisions started appearing in statutes in the 1930s in the Hoover administration. They substantially increased in numbers during the 1970s and kind of in the years leading up to the Chata case. You know, part of the interesting story is the interactions between what Congress is doing here and what the executive was doing, because many of these provisions were in statutes that the executive did sign into law, president signed them into law. Frequently under protest, they would issue signing statements and the like saying they had misgivings about the constitutionality of these provisions, but they nevertheless made it their way into statutes. And by the time of the Chada case in the 90s, I mean, the, in 1983, there were over 200 or so of these provisions in different statutes. So they really had proliferated throughout the code. And the one in Chada concerned immigration. It was a provision in the Immigration and Nationality Act that on the one hand, the statute allowed the executive to suspend deportation of individuals who otherwise were subject to deportation for various reasons. But then one of the two houses of Congress, if they disagreed with the suspension of deportation, had the ability to vote to overturn the suspension and therefore cause the person to be deported. And that's exactly what happened in the Chada 
case, Chada came to the United States as a student, college student, overstayed his visa, and was then being subjected to deportation proceedings. He sought from the Immigration Service and the executive a suspension of deportation on the ground that it would cause him extreme hardship. And he won in the executive uh, branch before an immigration judge. And it looked good for him. It looked like he was on a path to permanent residency. But a year and a half later, a majority in the House voted to overturn his suspension of deportation and five others in a group they had specified. And then he was going to be deported. He then took the case all the way up to the Supreme Court and managed to win, getting the court to agree that, in fact, the Congress should not have the ability to exercise one of these vetoes through something other than a new act of legislation. case stands for the proposition, in effect, that Congress can't overturn an executive act without passing a new statute. It can't reserve to itself some other mechanism like one of these veto provisions. Yeah, and the, the opinion sort of reads, one of the reasons I like to teach it is the opinion reads like a sort of a math textbook. You know, it makes it seem like it's a really simple application of formalism and Article One of the Constitution. How does Congress get to do something by passing a power bill becomes a law? You know, you need the House, you need the Senate, you need the president. And here they didn't do that. And so, of course, it's unconstitutional, which is fun. So what's wrong with that? Well, they do sort of make it mathematically oriented in the sense that they say there's a process in Article One, particularly Section 7, that talks about a requirement of two houses of Congress plus presentment to the president. And obviously, this particular veto exercised against Chada uh, did not follow that process. It's a little more complicated than that for one reason. Article 1, Section 7 says that bills have to go through bicameralism and presentment. This wasn't labeled a bill. And you'd have to then figure out what exactly a bill is. And not everything, obviously, that happens in Congress is a bill. There might be all sorts of things that Congress does internally that are not bills and therefore don't go through the bicameralism and presentment. And the, But maybe a bigger complication is there was a piece of legislation here that did go through two houses of Congress and presentment to the president. It's the Immigration Act itself that contains both the grant of authority to the executive and the veto provision. Those did make their way through as, as a bill and got uh, Article 1, Section 7 process applied to them. So it's a little more complicated than just uh, look, taking a look at it and saying something's happened here that didn't go through uh, two houses of Congress and presentment. And maybe the hardest element of that, I think, is what to make of the fact that Chada was subject to deportation. And that changed because something happened in the executive branch that changed that his status. That did not go through Article 1, Section 7 either. And yet the court doesn't really question that change. That change can happen without new legislation. And yet it singles out the subsequent change back that happened in the House. And I think that makes it a more complicated issue. When I listened to the oral argument again the other day, I was struck by what I think was actually a brilliant advocacy by the Solicitor General, Rex Lee, at the time, who in the first argument, it was actually argued twice, interestingly, in the Supreme Court, but in the first argument, most of the interesting questions happened. Rexley just started his argument by trying to address that dilemma of how is it that it's okay for the executive to do this change in status without going through legislation, but not okay for the House of Representatives to do it. And he just came right out of the box with an attempted answer to that question. Any attempt to defend the constitutionality of a legislative veto 
faces, I submit, an insoluble dilemma. And the reason is that there are two separate constitutional demands that that device has to satisfy. They are, first, the twin requirements for lawmaking specified in Article I of the Constitution, passage by both houses of Congress and presentation to the President, and the second is separation of powers. And now the dilemma. Any attempt to explain a legislative veto in such a way as to blunt the separation of powers problems that this is not really enforcement of the law, or this is not really interpretation of the law, only serves to highlight the fact that whatever else may be involved, Congress is clearly exercising legislative power, making new law, and is doing so by one House of Congress and without participation by the President. And I think one of the first questions from the bench was Justice Stevens, who was primed with that very question, but but it, already the the momentum of Stevens' questions was undercut a little bit by the fact Rexley had already anticipated it. And his answer, in essence, was delegating to the executive branch is just subject to the non-delegation doctrine, which you know, throughout much of history has been kind of weakly enforced, and that we call that really executing the law, interpreting the law, enforcing the law within the executive branch. And if you want to call it that when it happens in the House, the Solicitor General said, you have a problem because Congress is not allowed to execute the laws. It's not an Article 1, Section 1, 7 problem. It's just a problem of separation of powers. But if you think uh, what happened in the House is different, uh, then it is a piece, uh, in effect, of new legislation. And he basically said you have a dilemma. It's either unconstitutional on one ground or another. The only way that Congress can act is by legislation. If Section 244C2, then, of the Immigration and Nationality Act is not legislation, then Congress lacks the constitutional power to do it. And if it is legislation, then the bicameralism and the presentation requirements must be met. For that reason, you don't need to characterize it as either legislation or not legislation, because the one thing that is clear is that it is something that Congress has attempted to do. If Congress, uh, if it is legislation, then bicameralism and uh, presentation must be complied with. If it is not legislation, then Congress lacks the authority to do it. Whether you're persuaded by that or not, it struck me as a very smart move by an advocate to figure out what's likely to be the hardest question and just come right out and try to uh, start framing the answer to it. And obviously that position did prevail in the court, uh, Rex Lee's position, it's seven to two was the vote. So it wasn't that close. I and mean, maybe in that sense, it did seem fairly clear to most of the judges. I would say it's really more like eight one because one of the two dissenters was uh, Justice Rehnquist, who was really just dissenting about severability, not about uh, the merits here. And so it's really only Justice White who disagrees with the unconstitutionality of legislative vetoes. So you have a bench that has conservatives and liberals largely agreeing at the end of the day that this legislative veto in the House is a problem. Yeah, not listen to the argument. I wish I had. I agree with you. That's a it's a move that only really confident advocates feel comfortable doing is just beginning the argument by exposing their underbelly. Although if you can do it well, it's a good idea. So I think that defense, the sort of formalist defense that this is really about delegation of executive power works perfectly until a few years later when the court decides Mistretta. So Mistretta upholds this delegation of power to the Judicial Sentencing Commission, which is not in the executive branch. 
over the challenge. Justice Scalia, I guess, makes exactly this point in dissent and says, look, it's fine to have broad delegations to the executive branch, but you can't have broad delegations to people who are not in the executive branch. And the court says, well, we don't care about that. Yes, I agree. I think the court has not been perfectly consistent on this argument that had been made by Rex Lee. I nevertheless do think that the Chada decision has, uh, there's something to the distinction between delegations outside of Congress and inside. And one of the things, as I started learning more about kind of what's happened after Chada is, and and also sort of how the vetoes were used prior to Chada. And if you think about the Chada litigation itself, one of the problems with delegating to the execution of a statute to say a committee or one house of Congress is really have no overlay of any administrative law there. It just disappears. So if you delegate to one of the administrative agencies, We've sort of recognized since the New Deal that this is a lot of where a policymaking gets done in the United States. And there are a variety of Administrative Procedure Act provisions and other provisions that try to govern that. There's judicial review in many instances over the exercise of this delegated authority. When Congress delegates to a subunit of itself, we really lose a lot of that kind of overlay of legal protection. And the Chada case is a Probably this is one of the reasons why there was such a consensus in the case. It was such a strong case for this being a problem. On the one hand, you have an immigration judge in a statutory scheme administering it, applying legal factors, hearing evidence, and at the end of it concluding, yes, Chada merited suspension of deportation. And then on the other hand, you have this vote in the House. There was no recorded debate, no recording of the votes, and no explanation for the override of the administrative decision. And that seems like a mismatch of kind of bureaucratic rationality that I'm sure troubled some of the justices. And so, you know, each delegation is probably different, but I think there is a danger that just delegating absolute voting power to execute a law to a piece of Congress is more likely to increase kind of arbitrariness of government decision-making. And I think that Chada case is a particularly vivid illustration of that. Whereas I think at least the dangers are lower with some of the delegations outside of Congress. I love this point, although there's something really counterintuitive about it, if you think about it, right? Because I feel like we're now in an era where we're constantly hearing these attacks on the administrative state or on bureaucrats as being unaccountable and undemocratic and, you know, uh, all those things. And here, what is the House of Representatives? But kind of democratic, like a bunch of people who all got elected. So it seems weird, delicious to say that this sort of unelected bureaucrat constrained only by a kind of statutory code is somehow better, more positioned to make these decisions about liberty than people elected by the people. Yeah. And obviously, one some of the aspects of this particular case that bothers people probably relate to the fact that there's a kind of an adjudicatory aspect to it. Determining an individual status sounds somewhat adjudicatory. And when you think of it that way, it's easier to think Congress is probably not as well positioned to be an adjudicator in a case-specific way as compared to even a judicial institution within the executive branch. And in fact, Justice Powell, who consistent with, I think, his predilections in general, was did seek to try to have a narrower ground for disposing of this case. And he actually concurred on the ground that putting aside the bigger issues here, what we really have is a problem of Congress trying to reserve itself kind of an adjudicatory function, which is probably not well suited and certainly not, not in this particular case. But even as to the bigger point, 
Yeah, there was actually a pretty robust literature. It's sort of been forgotten by some modern scholars about the legislative veto, but there was a lot of scholarship prior to Chada that tried to figure out what those veto provisions did to the operations of government. And a lot, some of that literature found that it mainly just increased sort of lobbying interests, special interest groups having just more access points. We're not talking about public deliberation, democratic accountability. We're just talking more ability to influence maybe smaller numbers of members of Congress than you would have to for a piece of legislation, because you don't actually have to get your position all the way through the legislative process. Now, to be sure, there's a lot of literature on the danger of capture of administrative agencies and influence that goes towards the executive as well. So one would have to think about that as a, as a potential problem. But we've sort of been attuned to that problem for a long time. And there again, there's at least more overlay of legal provisions that are aimed to try to insulate certain agencies or get their decisions reviewed to see whether they can be sustained. And we just haven't applied those to Congress because for legislation, we think the democratic process has fully worked through. And then actually, typically, the presidency has had to agree as well. And these veto provisions take some of that out and I think increase really more opportunities for side deals and backroom deals than enhancing any kind of democratic participation. Uh, one of the things I learned that I had not known, maybe other people do know, one of the people who wrote about Chada right after it was decided was a senator, Joseph Biden, at the time. Uh, he wrote a law review article about legislative vetoes. And even though he was in Congress, he said, for the most part, Chad is probably good for Congress because it takes some of the lobbying interests off our back, is what he said huh. in this uh, Law Review article. And he did say, I should note, just to be fair, that he thought it might be a problem in foreign affairs, an area that I study quite a bit. He thought there might still be some need for some additional checks and war powers and the like. But he said for the administrative agency side of this, he thought it was basically just a good thing for Congress to get rid of the vetoes. He thought it would actually cause Congress to be more engaged with policymaking and less subject, at least to a degree, to special interest uh, influence. And that's an interesting perspective for somebody in the Congress. I have no idea what his views are today, but it shows that it may not be obvious that just because it was happening within Congress that it was necessarily kind of good governance or democratic. This is great. So I think of, you know, one of the conventional ways of approaching the case as it's the majority is this triumph of formalism, although as we've talked about, the, the formalist argument's not as simple as the majority. And then the dissent by Justice White is, of course, this very powerful functionalist critique of what the majority is doing. And so, you know, it's often seen as this is the triumph of formalism at the expense of functionalism. Here, Congress had this really important tool to rein in the, the overly venturous executive branch. Now we've taken it away from them. And so, of course, we get all the excessive executive power we have today. So it's, it's interesting that's not true. Exactly. So to the extent I have a bit of a contrarian take on it, of course, you know, there's a wide variety of views on Chada and on veto mechanism. But one of the narratives is the one that you've described. It's often taught as a very formalist opinion, repudiating a functional, functionally desirable mechanism that had developed between the two branches since the 1930s, and for formal reasons, disallowing this uh, useful device. This is certainly the gist of Justice White's dissent, which is with the rise of the administrative state, 
Congress has had to work out new ways of keeping controls over policymaking. As a practical matter, it has to delegate a lot of authority in our modern world to the executive. And this legislative veto device is a way of keeping some check on that and that the court, court majority use formal arguments to kind of disallow this. And, you know, if you read the majority opinion, there's a flavor of that, to be sure. They do say almost gratuitously things like, just because this might be efficient and useful for governance doesn't make it constitutional. It sounds like a resistance to those functional. Having said that, there's actually a fair amount of functional reasoning within the decision if you just you know look closely at what they're saying. So they say that the House's action is legislative, but how do they know it's legislative? Why call it a legislative as opposed to executive or something else? They could Rexley tried to box them in to make them call it one of those two things, and they decided to call it legislative because of its effect. The majority says it's not a bill, so it's actually not covered by the direct language of Article 1, Section 7, but they said in applying the Constitution, we also consider the effect of what's happening. And construing Article 1, they said we we consider what its constitutional functions are. And they actually use the word functions, interestingly enough, in thinking about how to construe the text of the Constitution. This is not purely wooden kind of application of language. It's, I would call it more of a structural reason that Article One set out a process for certain kinds of uh, reasons or functions, and the effect of this particular act should be covered by the purpose of that particular provision. That doesn't sound purely formalist to me. It sounds structural and functional to an extent. And Indeed, they go on to say, you know, this is legislative in character because it, quote, had the purpose and effect of altering legal rights, duties and relations. So really looking at what happens and not just what one might call a technicalities. On the other hand, Justice White, famously functionalist in his dissent, and it is framed that way. He says it will undermine some kind of good checks and balances. This decision would undermine good checks and balances between the two branches. But as other people have actually noted, it doesn't have any empirical evidence for his argument that either the vetoes were good for governance or that the loss of them will actually cause significant problems in uh, relationships between the, it's really just intuition. It's functionalism, but mainly just based on an intuition of the situation. So I think it's actually simplistic, too simplistic to call the majority entirely formalist. I don't think that it is. And I think White's functionalism at least probably needed better support rather than just appealing generically to some kind of idea of balance between the branches. But the bigger issue is even if the majority is formless, whether you like that or you don't like that, I do think there's a pretty good case to be made that legislative vetoes overall are functionally problematic anyway. That is, you you could rewrite the opinion if you wanted to. Decent scholarship, very good scholarship prior to that by Bruff and Gellhorn, David Martin at UVA, who, that actually just went through the functional attributes of legislative vetoes prior to Chada. And they, and they actually did studies. They interviewed congressional staffers, had case studies about how it worked under various statutes. At least their findings were that it wasn't so positive. Some of the articles suggested maybe just caused Congress to delegate too much, for one thing, to the executive on this kind of false hope. They could always rein it back in later, which, in fact, they often didn't rein it back in with these veto provisions. And as I've mentioned, it seemed to just multiply the opportunities for special interest influence during the deliberative process. And it also, as I've noted, increase the arbitrariness of at least some kinds of decisions that emanated out of the government by shifting them out of 
the administrative uh, process. At least arguments on the other side that I don't think Justice White really engages with and just kind of accepting the desirability of the veto mechanisms. The majority was clearly aware of those arguments. They actually refer to the articles in passing that have made those arguments. They also highlight for good measure just the facts that showed the kind of arbitrariness of what happened to Chada. They note there was no recorded vote, no debate in the House, et cetera. And it's clear they were at least uh, taking into account, I don't, we don't know how much it influenced particular justices, that it wasn't obvious that these veto mes- mechanisms were necessarily good for governance. So, you know, maybe this is contrarian, is that Chada can be defended on functional grounds in addition to whatever formal arguments uh, the court invoked about uh, provisions of Article One, And I at least think that's a harder case that Justice White took on in his dissent. And one of the keeps coming up, sort of thinking about the the sympathetic or unsympathetic way in a way of the context of Chada, you know, the immigration question, the the sympathetic character, the lack of a recorded vote, the fact that the single house or part of a single house. So one of the things that's not obvious from the opinion is that it's just generalized to all legislative vetoes. You know, what about both houses of Congress acting together to veto a use of force under the War Powers Resolution or the declaration of a national emergency? So do you think those should be different? Are they all the same? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think Powell, among others on the court, was worried about saying more than they had to decide this case. I think there are a lot of people who would have had concerns about the veto in this particular setting and might have had fewer concerns in other settings. You know, in some ways, it seems less problematic in terms of some of the functional concerns to have a two house veto as opposed to one, you know, the concerns about extra opportunities for special interests, for example, or another concern that comes up for one house vetoes is just seems to add another way for a party not in the White House to block executive action. And if anything, this partisan gridlock problem has grown much more severe since 1983. But the two house veto probably poses that to a a lesser extent. You know, one problem there is you still would have to write an opinion that grounds a distinction in constitutional law somehow, if you're going to invalidate one and not the other, one house versus two house. And one would need to link that up to something beyond just one of those devices seems to be less functionally problematic than the other. I think most people would agree with that. And I don't think the court saw a way to uh, rescue some of these veto provisions and not others. You know, kind of strangely, Justice White has said that a two house veto is more constitutionally problematic than a one-house one, which has always kind of surprised me. He had this very complicated theory to try to avoid the argument that this was new legislation in the House. He had a complicated theory that the executive suspension of deportation was just a proposal for new legislation, and that if neither House objected, in effect, you got all two branches on board, kind as if you passed a new statute. That was basically his theory. It's a weird theory because you normally think you'd actually have to do all those things as opposed to just silence being the same as having two houses having voted. But even putting aside the weirdness, what it meant for him was that if two houses had to object, that would just kind of distort the theory because under his theory, any house could stop legislation. And if this is a proposal for legislation, one house veto makes more sense because then that shows effectively that neither house objected. You kind of have something like new legislation. I'm not persuaded by that particular theory that's kind of an imagined view of legislation, but it just shows you that some of these categories can can distort our intuitions about which of these are better or worse from a constitutional 
law standpoint. The other thing I'll note about two house vetoes, you know, so there have been a lot of consternation about Chada and the Leslie veto recently during the last administration, the Trump administration. You know, I think the debate had sort of quieted down, but a lot of people wrote during the Trump administration that I think in overstated ways, in my view, that Chada is one of the things that has really caused harm to our separation of powers. It's contributed significantly to the growth of executive executive authority. And they were really perturbed about this regime under Trump because there were a few instances under Trump in which he did buck even members of his own party in ways that look like you might have gotten a two-house veto. And that, and if you think that maybe is less problematic, there might have been a few instances in which two houses of Congress, if they didn't have to have a new statute, could have stopped Trump from building part of the border wall or things like uh, just declaring other kinds of emergencies and the like. And I think that motivated people to say, to say maybe Chada was wrongly decided. If, but I think they were really thinking it'd be nice to have the two house veto a possibility for a populist president or something like uh, Trump. In reality, I don't think that made much of a difference. And even in the Trump administration, uh, if we had it, uh, you know, these two house veto provisions say in war powers, we still have it actually in war powers. There's still a two house veto provision in the War Powers Act. It hasn't been removed. And some people have said it, it evades Chada for some complicated reasons that I won't go through at the moment. But has two have two houses of Congress ever voted it out? No, that was true before. Chada, it's been true in the many years after Chada, almost 40 years. There were two House veto provisions way back since the 50s in war powers in use of force resolution. Were they ever used? No. Even during Vietnam, quite an unpopular war. They had a two House veto provision there. Did they use it? No. They actually finally resorted to regular legislation near the end of the Vietnam War. It just didn't do a lot of work, even of the, when it's a two House variety. I think one House is more likely to do work, but is also more likely to be functionally problematic. So my other kind of counter contrarian view about Chada is I just don't think it made that much of a difference. It's a decision that's much talked about. The fact that it seemed like it's effectively struck down hundreds of provisions makes it seem quite dramatic. But in my study, I just don't think the legislative veto was doing a tremendous amount of work prior to Chada, particularly for in the areas people now care about, like war powers and emergency declarations. It was never used. It was actually never used and actually never threatened to be used before Chada. And, you know, if you just look at like the war issues and debates we've had since then, I don't see basically any times it would have been used effectively in the 40 or so years since Chada. So my own view is Chada is probably not as significant as people think it was in terms of its impact on congressional executive relations. And some other areas, people always forget about this, and some other areas, uh, Congress did respond to Chada not always in ways that favored the executive. The two areas where Congress actually did use the veto provisions kind of frequently, other than immigration, were executive reorganization proposals. That's where it started in the 30s when they first had one of these, and impoundment or deferral of spending. And they had allowed that to happen in the executive over time with some veto bill, and they used the veto before Chada. Well, Chada comes along, so what do they do? They just took back the power. So Congress actually just changed those statutes to say you have to have a new statute now if you want to defer funds under certain conditions or you want to reorganize the executive branch. They actually just took back the authority to the legislature, which is very different from the usual story of Chada that it just meant everything went to the executive branch. And then some other areas they didn't take back, 
but they weren't using the veto really anyway. And I'm not convinced they would have in the subsequent years. One other kind of really just remarkable thing about what happened after Chada, and other people have commented on this, the vast majority of legislative veto provisions in the U.S. Code have been enacted by Congress after 1983. They've been enacted after Chada. A book came out a few years ago that estimated 80% of all of the legislative veto provisions we've ever had have been enacted after Chada. You know, just remarkable, this momentous separation of powers decision, most people I think correctly read as disallowing all legislative veto provisions, certainly didn't stop the flow of them into the code. Now, most of those are in the spending area, the appropriations area, where Congress has said that in order to make certain kinds of spending decisions, you actually have to get approval of committee, certain appropriations committees. That probably violates Chada because they're basically saying this committee gets to make some kind of new decision that hadn't been made prior. And but it doesn't seem to matter because the administrative agencies that are subject to these new veto provisions, they have all the incentive in the world to work with the committees who are going to have to fund them next year. And so they actually just work out these veto things apparently informally. No one thinks you need to take the agencies to court and test out whether Chada applies or doesn't apply it. There's just a whole veto regime that apparently works informally post-Chada and allows those appropriations committees tremendous amount of influence over spending in the administrative agencies, all maybe without any constitutional law attached to it and certainly no, no judicial review attached to it. So it's kind of a remarkable example of how a lot of separation of powers, you know, really isn't determined by the Supreme Court. A lot of how Congress and the executive are going to interact, what kind of leverage Congress has over agencies is largely independent of what the Supreme Court said in this constitutional law decision. So the stories about Congress pulling back the authority after Chada actually make me wonder about something you mentioned very early on, severability part of this. Yes. yes. Not just because this is the thing I'm currently obsessed with. So there is something weird, isn't there, about we have a, a world where Congress gives the executive some authority with some strings attached. Yes. The Supreme Court jumps in and tells Congress, actually, you can't attach the strings. But guess what? The executive branch gets to keep the authority. And I guess we even know empirically, right, that in the areas where Congress, where the strings actually mattered, Congress was not happy with that deal and would have preferred not to give the authority and then took it back. So yes. is something fishy going on there? Is yeah. This- so there has been, there have been critiques, you know, maybe well taken about uh, severability analysis in Chad. It's pretty light. They basically make two points. One is there was a general severability provision in the immigration statute. It didn't specifically refer to this particular scenario, but it just generally said that if provisions were found unconstitutional, that they should be severed. And they do apply in Chada kind of a general presumption in favor of severability to try to preserve the rest of the statute. You can reasonably question whether this that presumption adequately captures you know, what Congress really wanted. It's I find it hard to say. There are a few instances where that's clearly not what they wanted, and they took it back. Now, interestingly, they managed to take it back, which is so usually the complaint I hear here is they wouldn't have wanted this deal where they delegate, but they don't got they don't have the veto. But they're kind of stuck is the claim, because after Chada, they'd have to have a new veto proof statute to kind of ratchet it back. Well, those examples where they did take it back, they didn't actually have to overcome a veto. They just managed to do it, interestingly. And the other thing I'll say is they did amend a number of the other statutes sometimes to narrow the scope of the delegation, 
often to do something else. They just added a different check, which is often called report and wait. So they vastly increased the number of report and wait provisions, which, which basically require the executive before they act to inform Congress that they're going to do something, give 60 days or some period of time to Congress under often fast track uh, procedures. It means that you can get to the floor to see whether Congress really does object or not. Now, in theory, maybe still have to enact a statute over maybe even the president's veto, but it still gives Congress kind of an expedited way of responding. And the point is they went in and they amended a lot of these statutes that these did not just stay in the books completely untouched for 40 years after Chada with some kind of deal that Congress would have never made. So I'm not entirely convinced that Congress only delegated because it thought it had this meaningful check. It lost the check and then it was left holding the bag because it seemed to be able to reclaim some of it where it cared about it. It amended in other ways a lot of the other statutes that had that used to have these veto Provisions. And then the final thing I'll say is one of the biggest arguments that Justice White makes that I actually thought to some extent was true is uh, he claimed there was a Hobson's choice, famous quote from Justice White's dissent, that in our modern administrative state, uh, Congress has this you know, problematic choice, either don't delegate very broadly and micromanage all of the affairs of state, or give it all and lose control over policymaking if you don't have a veto. And he called a Hobson's choice under the theory that's not really much of a choice. They're just going to have to delegate in order to, because they just can't run the government themselves. There's some truth to that. I think Congress probably has to delegate a lot to have our government work and domestic and foreign affairs. But if that's true, it's it's kind of less of a deal. That is to say, it's not like Congress was thinking, I'll just hold on to most of this unless I have the veto. In fact, I think Justice White is probably right they do have to delegate a lot and they want to delegate a lot. They don't want all of this coming back to them. And then the question just becomes not so much Congress holding the bag, but uh, what kind of checks are available and would be desirable in the operations of government. And you could have debates whether the legislative veto ought to be one of those. And if it's not, are there other mechanisms that are useful and serve some kind, some of these checking functions. Some of the political scientists who have studied this, they've done a lot more work on the empirics, I think, than most of the legal scholars, have actually found that these other mechanisms like report and wait, some of the informal veto structures, as far as they can tell, allow Congress a lot of the same, and maybe even sometimes more leverage and policy oversight than they would have had even if Chada had come out the other way. And I don't know for sure whether that's right, but I don't think the legal scholars have disproven that. I don't think there's been a clear empirical case that Congress, in fact, has suffered significantly in terms of its ability to have leverage with the executive because of this particular decision. I, I think kind of like Justice White, that's just an intuition about this, just because this had appeared in so many different provisions. But it's not clear from the empirics that that's, in fact, the case. And as I said, Senator Biden actually was of the view that Congress might do a somewhat better job of oversight, interestingly, without having the crutch, which he thought was not a very useful one in many respects of the veto mechanism, which is interesting for a sitting senator to have, have that perspective. So can I try out a slightly more cynical response sure. to Justice yes. White? I don't, know, I, don't, I don't know who side <laughs> this is on. So, you know, yes, Congress has to delegate, practically has to delegate to the executive branch. And they don't want to delegate with no oversight. And after Chada, they can't retain the oversight role. So what can they do for oversight? Well, look, they have the Administrative Procedure Act and sort of the growth of administrative law, which says that they should actually just put judges in charge of oversight. So what the court is really saying is not 
not the Hobson's choice. It's saying you want to delegate, you have to delegate, but you wanted to be in charge of overseeing the delegation. You can't do that. You've got to put us in charge. So conveniently, the Article Three courts erect the the answer to the Hobson's choice is the Article Three courts win because Congress can you know as long as it has a judicial review, that'll work. And so then the courts get even more power over the administrative state, and now it seems like they're overseeing every rulemaking on any major topic in the country. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that cynical take probably has some merit and probably explains some other decisions I can think of from the Supreme Court as well. Having said that, it's probably less, has less bite here than some other examples that I can think of. You know, it is true, I think, the modern Supreme Court has kind of a judicial supremacy mindset in many of its opinions. In general, other than the Rucho case from in recent years, that a political question doctrine has not had a vibrant life in part, I think, because the court does tend to want to keep itself as at least a possible actor for just about everything. I think it's a less bite here. And the reason is we're just talking about mechanisms for the most part that would have you know, come in only occasionally you know, and periodically. Not This was not an active mechanism in the legislative branch anyway at that time, and I think would not have been significantly active since. So most of the action, even if China come out the other way, is still going to happen in the executive and in the agencies and in judicial review, as you mentioned. And of course, the Administrative Procedure Act and the judicial review elements were all largely in place anyway. So I don't think that's a heavy explanation uh, for it. You know, it might be obviously that as between the fact that this case had a kind of an adjudicatory character to it, which clearly bothered Justice Powell and some of the justices might have triggered what you're describing, which is we have at least administrative law judges operating on this subject to Article three judges potentially versus these legislators, and I'm sure the Supreme Court uh, had a view about which one of those two might do a better job on these particular issues. But I'm not sure that this Chada decision itself shifted a lot of work away from Congress over to the courts. Uh, that'd be my guess anyway. Like I said, nowadays, if you look at the criticisms of Chada during the Trump administration, it's primarily foreign affairs and emergency declarations areas. And even most of those critics note that those veto provisions, if they were enforceable, would be very occasional kinds of things. And probably ones where in war powers, for example, the courts have not tried to intervene at all as far as, you know, in in the modern era. This is not an area in which the courts have, you know, that's an area where they just try to carve themselves out a role instead of having Congress see that role. So I don't see it as a huge explanation uh, for the Chada decision. Now, I will say, you know, you had mentioned at the beginning that the court kind of describes it as kind of following almost axiomatically from the text of the Constitution, this invalidity of legislative views. I, I think they viewed it as a difficult case in some ways. I read apparently um, Linda Greenhouse, the Supreme Court journalist, looked at Justice Blackmun's papers, including about this case. And apparently Justice Blackmun thought it was quite clear and straightforward. It clearly violated the Constitution. Apparently Chief Justice Berger had all sorts of anxiety about the case, even though he ends up writing the majority opinion, turns out that apparently an interesting story there because the case got re-argued for the set in the second term with apparently no particular good reason for it to be re-argued. If you listen to the second argument, they've already asked basically most of their questions. It's nothing particularly new has happened. And Linda Greenhouse reports based on her study of the Blackman papers that Berger was just kind of awed by the significance of maybe striking down all of these provisions 
Blackman, I think, was ready to go and probably was willing to write an opinion fairly quickly doing that. It looked like there was a majority right from the beginning to strike down the veto. But Berger apparently took his time and kind of vacillated about what to do. And Powell was making some noise internally about maybe there's a, a narrow way to deal with this. And Greenhouse's story is Berger just never assigns the opinion by the end of the term. It's just never <laughs> been assigned. And apparently people are waiting. And apparently people go to the court waiting for the end of term opinions that Chada case should be out. It just never comes out. And in fact, Berger announces to the justices, I'm relisting, we're relisting it for next term. And apparently, according to the papers, Blackman was not entirely pleased to hear that. And Berger said he sensed there was some consensus to just have it re-argued, which was not entirely clear there was that. But it it did show, uh, certainly on Berger's part, at least, a sense that even if he thought the text was reasonably clear, that he was struggling with the case. Uh, I think the other rumors were that he really decided late in the day he wanted to write the opinion. And that was kind of a late in the day decision and needed more time maybe to do it. So, you know, I think the the court took it quite seriously. It's not a, you know, a a normal decision necessarily. You'd have every day to potentially strike down laws that to some extent have been around for 40, 50 years. And I think the court the court did think about that. It wasn't so it wasn't just a pure judicial supremacist kind of yeah. thought. I think they agonized a bit. Yeah, I'm torn. So I'm glad to see the court taking seriously when it strikes down a lot of statutes. Let's <laughs> yeah. take that seriously. I don't quite know whether to call just failing to assign the opinion for a term <laughs> and then relisting it because you ran out of time. Whether that's taking it ser- like I don't know. If one of my students in seminar said I took this paper so seriously, I just didn't start writing it, <laughs> <laughs> and now it's due. <laughs> I'm just awed by the project. I don't know whether I'd say, yeah. Yeah, Greenhouse is not complimentary about Berger's particular reaction there and describes it as kind of a a lack of leadership, a part of being the chief justice or any justices, you know, you need to make the hard decisions. And apparently Berger had not voted at conference. I'm not sure how unusual that was initially, although clearly privately was leaning towards it being unconstitutional and just had difficulty coming around to get his head around that. And I agree. It's, I don't, it's not a compliment the way he translated the awe of the, of the situation into delay, which is not necessarily good for right. anybody, if the government or for the litigants. The, but the point, uh, this point maybe just being that, that I think he and I think the other justices took it seriously as something uh, that it was not just the court should have the last word or something like that. You know, there are some things about their analysis, uh, you know, that in my other writings I have complained about. I thought they were a little too cavalier to discount all of the, you know, governmental practice that had accumulated since the 1930s. I would have liked to see a little bit more weight having given to that. I think there are answers to that. Uh, They could say, in fact, they aren't using it very much except in a few areas. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And they could say what I would have said if I were giving more weight to it than they did in the majority opinion is, you know, it's actually it's less significant a practice than it might appear. And also significantly, it's not one of these arrangements where both branches had kind of agreed this is a really important, useful a development in the operations of government. Let's make it work together. It was not a cooperative Congress executive project, at least for the most part. There were times the executive acquiesced. But almost every attorney general since the 30s and many presidents had publicly said, I just don't think this is constitutional. Obviously, you know, we have this complication that they often sign them into law. But as the Office of Legal Counsel has said, just because a president signs something into law, particularly over objections, does not mean they get to bind all future presidents to the constitutionality of it. And 
the, the other thing I'll note is a vast number of these veto provisions were not from the 1930s. They were not these longstanding reorganization provisions. They were put in right at the end of Vietnam, during Watergate or right afterwards, and where there was a lot of debate. And the executive was clearly opposed to their legitimacy and constitutionality. And so it was just at a height of contestation between the branches, not some kind of nice cooperative arrangement that the court just disregarded. I think they could have made more of that if they wanted to in the opinion to say there's been actually sharp conflict, both on the constitutional law side and also over the usefulness about this mechanism. And it's really changed over time and rapidly proliferated, also moved into very sensitive areas like war powers and other areas that had not started out that way. And I think that reduces the argument of deferring to some kind of longstanding separation of powers arrangement that the branches have managed to work together and that has worked successfully. I wish they had said more of that because I do think there are such things in the world that suggest the court ought to step back. And I don't think the Supreme Court has to decide everything. And if the branches have managed to work something out reasonably well over time, I think there's an argument for the court potentially pulling back. But I think they had answers here they probably could have made better. I was going to say, so maybe this proves that Berger didn't assign the case to the right, but maybe we should just be (laughs) grateful he assigned the case at all. This has been amazing. I think we are running out of time, so we should close our episode here. But I know I learned a lot about the Constitution, although I'm not sure whether the Constitution came out of this conversation, the the winner or not. (laughs) Well, I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much, Will. So thank you for joining us today. For updates on future episodes, follow us on Twitter at UChicagoConLaw. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and comment wherever you get your podcasts. If you need more current SCOTUS talk, check out Divided Argument, an unscheduled, unpredictable podcast hosted by me and Dan Epps. Thank you all.